Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. Last week, we reviewed the first season of one of the big fantasy shows on TV, The Rings of Power. This week, we'll review the other big fantasy series, which just wrapped up its first season as well. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun. I saw Black Adam and was a lot more entertained than I was expecting. I'll review The Rock's foray into the DCEU. And we've talked about the screen presentation of this before, but this week we both got to see Come From Away live. Or should I say it like the guy in Dancing with the Stars? Live! But in the meantime, let's review season one, no spoilers, by the way, of the HBO Game of Thrones spinoff, House of the Dragon. The Greens are coming for you, Rhaenyra. And for your children. Cannot bend the knee to the high towers. They stole your birthright. Every man standing round the painted table urges her to plunge the realm into war. Lay siege to the Red Keeper. Send us. I swear to ward the Queen. Your cause owns a power that has not been seen since the days of old Valyria. Set 200 years before the events we came to know in Game of Thrones, which is a medieval fantasy world with a handful of dragons, but mostly just really grumpy and mean people all trying to kill each other and claim the Iron Throne to be the ruler of the Seven Kingdoms, House of the Dragon delves into the ruling house Targaryen, the primary family family with the dragons. They currently sit on the Iron Throne. King Viserys eventually declares his daughter, Rhaenyra, will succeed him. What? A woman? Of course, there's all kinds of plotting to make sure that this doesn't happen so they can instead put his younger son Aegon on the throne, even though, uh, as mentioned, he is younger. And that's pretty much it. It's just a big dysfunctional family drama set in a fantasy land with a handful of dragons and lots of really grumpy, mean people all trying to kill each other. And while many reviews have been glowing, it has many critics. So, Jeff, what did you think? I guess I'm one of the critics, and I'm pretty sure you like this a lot more than me because I didn't really like it at all. Each week kind of felt like homework having to watch it, and most weeks I'd put it off for days or it would take me three or four sittings to get through an episode. There were things I liked about it, but it was missing the things that I really liked about Game of Thrones, the wide scope of the whole world. Uh, Game of Thrones would bounce around to all different corners of Westeros and across the sea, and House of the Dragon mostly stayed in one or two places. Uh, dragons, The Dragon Show also had little to no humor or joy or clever dialogue, things that were very present in Game of Thrones, but mostly it was the characters. You know, I wasn't expecting the show was going to have anyone as great as Tyrion Lannister, but almost everyone in the show was just devoid of personality, I found. They're just either exposition machines or blonde monsters made of hate. Um, and to say that I didn't care what happened to any of these people is an understatement. You know, these shows love killing people off, but if you don't care when anyone dies... That's a problem. The second last episode, for example, featured someone sitting on a dragon and pointing the nose of that dragon at about half the cast. And all I was thinking was, 
please just barbecue the whole lot of them so we can get some better characters. Now, it might <laughs> it might just take some time because, you know, Jamie Lannister was no prize pig in the first season of Game of Thrones, but a few years later, you know, he's making friends with Brienne of Tarth and getting in adventures, and he turned out to be a redeemable character and a fan favorite, and that was a lot of fun to watch. And so far, there's nothing like this here. But again, you know, after one season, it might just take a few more years for some of this to pay off. The actual game of Thrones, I did find that interesting. I like when the people plot against each other and all that stuff, but it doesn't carry a whole lot of weight because who cares who actually gets to be king or queen in any of these scenarios? It all flips back and forth so often in these shows, and life doesn't seem to change one way or another for anyone else when someone new gets onto the throne. So it does it really matter then? And it's also got, you know, the prequel problem of us knowing where this all goes anyway. You can do a very simple Google search and find out the whole line of succession all the way through the history of this world. The dragon stuff in the finale was excellent. That was the best payoff dragon-wise. It was definitely the high point of season one, I thought. It was just beautifully shot. There's very haunting images uh, in the lead-up of this sort of uh, dragon chase or whatever it was. Now, I will also say the future of the show looks a little more promising because they're, you know, gearing up for a war heading into the second season. So hopefully we'll get some good battle scenes in season two. And hopefully they, you know, kill the eye patch guy first because watching him do his Zoolander impression is driving me batty. I, I just can't stand the look of that guy. So uh, not a lot of fun to watch for me, at least for House of the Dragon. I am hoping for better things in the next season. Now, I know you liked it a lot more than that, Brett. What'd you think? Yeah, I, I loved this season, and I didn't know what to think when I heard what it was about. You know, it's based on a book called Fire and Blood, which tells this story of how the House Targaryen tore itself apart, uh, courtesy of something, a, a war they call the Dance of the Dragons. You know, Game of Thrones was a story that spanned many lands and many families and houses, so to learn that this show is primarily about just one family. I don't know. It didn't seem that intriguing to me. It sounded boring in comparison, but I did really enjoy it. You know, it has, as you pointed out, the same elements of that sort of backstabbing quest for power that we saw in Game of Thrones. And they do a really good job at showing how hard life is for the women in this cast. Three of the most powerful characters in the in the realm are women, but nothing, nothing comes easy for them because it's a man's world. So I thought that was interesting, but also a sad contrast. Now, of course, we saw this in Game of Thrones as well, but it's really amplified in House of the Dragon here because all of the primary protagonists are female. Things I didn't like as much, or many of the primary, not all of them, but many of them are. Things I didn't like as much. I was definitely hoping for more action. It's not a very exciting show. Yeah, we got some cool dragon stuff in the finale, like you mentioned. Really cool. But even the big battle, they were in the first couple of episodes, they were teasing towards this monster battle. And Game of Thrones did such a great job with its battle scenes. So then we get to it and it doesn't happen. So I was, I don't know, I was kind of annoyed by that. I also didn't particularly care for all of the time jumps. Now, I understand why they did it. It suits the story. And maybe that's exactly how it goes in the book. I don't know. I haven't read the book. But just as I was really getting to like or even know a particular version of a character, they time jump. So that made it tough to feel connected to these characters sometimes. And some of the time jumps just don't seem to make sense. Like with King Viserys and Queen Alicent's son, Aemond, the one you mentioned with who lost his eye, 
when he lost that eye at the hands of one of Rhaenyra's kids, so a nephew stabs out his uncle's eye, Aemon didn't look that much older. But then we jump a few years. He's all grown up now, even looks older than his older brother, and looks way older than Rhaenyra's kids. So I found that kind of jarring. But uh, whatever. The dragons, yeah, I second that. They look fantastic. I thought they looked fantastic in this. And I thought the finale was incredible. Yeah, we had drama, excitement, intrigue, tragedy, anger, the horrors that Rhaenyra goes through in that episode. Learning of um, the deaths of a few key characters, all while other things are happening to threaten her claim to the Iron Throne. Just imagine going through all of that and... As you pointed out, the season ends with basically a declaration. So I'm looking forward to season two. And we mentioned at the beginning of this season and the beginning of the Rings of Power, you know, we're not sure if there's any point in comparison in comparing House of the Dragon to the Rings of Power. But it's also impossible to avoid because everyone's doing it anyway. And they're both these huge tentpole fantasy shows, but where the Rings of Power is bright and accessible for a younger audience, House of the Dragon is much darker, literally and figuratively. Many people have complained some of the scenes are just too dark. I didn't have that problem on my TV, but if you did, you're not alone. It was definitely a big problem for their big battle in the final season of Game of Thrones. Couldn't see half the action. Rings of Power certainly had more excitement, flashier, flashier visuals, but I found its character development was tedious. The plotting was slow. It had clunky dialogue and just too many storylines that took too long to move anywhere, whereas House of the Dragon had very little excitement, but it was I found con sort of constant character development with terrific dialogue. So, yep, the visuals were better in Rings of Power, but I enjoyed House of the Dragon overall more because it told a better story, I think. Uh, but fingers crossed for better things from Rings of Power and for House of the Dragon. I hope it continues to be good, and I hope that you it gets better for you, Jeff. And it sounds like they're only planning four seasons of the show, so it likely won't drag on forever. I do want to point out, I had a friend reach out to me who was listening to the Couch Potatoes. His name is Brent, and he says, uh, Lord of the Rings is the best drama I've seen on television. I liked it so much better than the movies. So rich, so layered. I'm surprised that you were lukewarm on it. I loved every second. It made the uh, Game of Thrones thing unwatchable for me. So, <laughs> But uh, we should point out that guy is an architecture nerd. And uh, Lord <laughs> of the Rings definitely had Come it on. over the House of the Dragon in that regard, right? <laughs> uh Fair. That's you know what? That's a that's an excellent point. Uh, some like when they pulled the when they pull up to uh, a Region, for example, in the Rings of Power, just the the dis, the or Numenor, like the design elements of that show are, are unmatched. I don't know we've ever seen anything like that, even in the Lord of the Rings movies. So yep, I can <laughs> I can get we we love you, Brent. Anyway, um so House of the Dragon, I like it. Jeff, not so much. Up next, curious to know what Jeff thinks about Black Adam. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and I've got good news and bad news about the movie Black Adam. The good news is it's not as bad as you've heard, but the bad news is it's still not that good. Black Adam. We're here to negotiate your peaceful surrender. I'm not peaceful. Nor do I surrender. It's his darkness that lets him do what heroes cannot. The battle you're meant to fight is upon us. There's no one on this planet that can stop me. 
Black Adam has grossed about $80 million domestically heading into this weekend and $150 million worldwide. Not a big hit as far as superhero movies go. It's also not been embraced by critics at 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. But the audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes is 90%, and the movie's PR team has been leaning into that. Black Adam sees Dwayne The Rock Johnson enter the DC Extended Universe. And in fact, a bunch of other superheroes have now entered the fray as well, because while The Rock's Black Adam gets all the headlines, it's really kind of a team-up movie. The advertising doesn't highlight that, although... A lot of people are on the poster. And, you know, certainly from what I saw, the, tr- the the commercials didn't really feature these other guys. But when you have The Rock in your movie, I guess you tend to focus on The Rock. The others that we do get here are played by Pierce Brosnan. He plays uh, Dr. Fate. Aldous Hodge plays a guy named Hawkman. And we get a young lady as Cyclone and a young man as Adam Smasher. Their backstories are non-existent. They get very quick introductions and we're up an atom right away. It's a weird way to go about it, but I guess it's on brand with the DCEU because that first much maligned Justice League movie in 2017 did something similar. It feels like it's maybe DC's way of countering Marvel's method of giving each hero their own movie to start and then eventually putting them all together later on down the line. DC does it the other way with, you know, let's toss them all in one big stew right off the hop and then we'll get to individual movies later. This works a little bit better than the original Justice League, but It's still, I found, a terribly awkward way to go about things. I really couldn't tell you anything about Cyclone or Atom Smasher, but Dr. Fate and Hawkman are drawn out a little bit more. Mostly, though, it is a Black Adam movie. We get a huge download of information and history right out of the gate. The movie is set in a fictional country called Kondok, and thousands of years ago, Black Adam, going by the name Teth Adam, obtained magic powers through a local magic mineral and defeated the king, and he was imprisoned or something, and he stayed that way for all these years. Until now, I also gather that it's tied into the Shazam mythology or vice versa. They got the same logo. The word Shazam is uttered here. Uh, I have seen the Shazam movie. I don't really remember it. So, I mean, Shazam nerds will know what's up. For casual fans like me, it didn't really have anything to do with the movie. It doesn't matter. And then one day, you know, Adam is let loose by accident on purpose by Sarah Shahi, a terrific actress. I'm always happy when she shows up. She plays a freedom fighter in Kondak who is trying to find the ancient magic crown of the king to use as a weapon to overthrow the bad guys who've invaded her country. She ends up summoning Teth Adam, and that also ends up summoning these other superheroes. So we have all these different factions at play, the bad invaders, the good heroes, and then Adam caught in the middle. Also, you know, because he's from ancient times, there's a lot of fish out of water stuff where he doesn't know how to relate in the modern world. And uh, in that end, you know, Shai, Shai, uh, Sarah Shahi's teenage son tries to help him. And then they have this similar relationship that we saw with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Eddie Furlong in Terminator 2. It's That's kind of a vibe. And the movie itself is actually pretty exciting. After we get this massive dump of information at the beginning, I'd be willing to bet that we never really go more than three or four minutes without some sort of action on screen. The movie just zips along nicely. It's filled with fights and chases and whatnot. They're not breaking any new ground here, but the action is decent. It looks really cool when Adam flies, and he's often moving at the speed of light, and he breaks through a lot of walls. I mean, you don't want him to come visit you because he does not use the door very often. The Rock's good in the role, although 
because Adam is the strong silent type, we do lose the Rock's charm and charisma, which is kind of the main thing he has going for him. It's a thing people like about him. But honestly, because he does mostly play the same guy in every movie, it was nice to see him do something quite a bit different here. Pierce Brosnan uh, is the most entertaining of the other heroes. He livens up a lot of scenes that would otherwise be very flat. Um, this is going to sound weird, maybe, but the big fight at the end relies too much on CGI. And I know the whole movie is filled to the brim with CGI, but it is even more so at the end in one respect, which uh, was just too bad. Overall, I was fairly entertained. It kept me focused on the movie throughout all the crazy action, the nonstop action. They probably should have figured out how to do things a little bit more simply and just do this with just Adam and not all these other heroes. It was a bit much, but eh, oh well, not destined to be a classic, but also not as bad as some of the reviews would have you believe. It's very watchable. I think everyone in the theater seemed to be having a good time. I think kids will really like this one too, although it is PG-13, although there's nothing too terrible in it. I will say three couch cushions out of five for Black Adam and remind you to stay in your seat for a stinger scene halfway through the credits. Uh, you wouldn't want to miss that one, but uh, other than that, three out of five for Black Adam. Okay, I still got to make sure I get some tickets to see that because I want to see it honestly primarily for that mid-credit stinger scene. I know what it is. I won't say what it is, but uh, I am excited to see it. Up next, we're going to dive back into the cabinet of curiosities and we're going to learn about the patient. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. I wanted to continue to tell you about something that I started telling you about last week because that show is now out on Netflix, it's Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. No! There's a void inside of me, inside of everyone. What is happening to me? There's an endless abyss. You are really harshing my mellow, man. So to recap, Cabinet of Curiosities is, and they refer to Guillermo del Toro as the maestro of horror, and he has compiled, it's basically like his own Twilight Zone or his own Alfred Hitchcock Presents, where it's just a collection of short stories, and he comes out at the beginning of each episode and introduces the show and gives you just a sort of snapshot or a sneak peek on what it is about, and... Every story is just a self-contained one-off story. No, Typically no more than, I think the longest one is just under an hour. Some of them are 45 minutes, and I watched a couple of them last week. There's eight episodes in total, and what, they're, what they did this week is they dropped the first two episodes on Tuesday, two more on Wednesday, two more on Thursday, and two more on Friday. So I had preview access. The Couch Potatoes uh, get preview access to some stuff on Netflix. So I zoomed through them, and I loved it overall. I think of the eight episodes, only the sixth one was a miss for me. I found all of these stories fascinating. I loved how each one of them... It started with this kind of slow burn mystery and then would eventually just descend into total chaos. Um, oftentimes gory, so certainly not necessarily for the squeamish. I wouldn't say that it's a scary show. Like there's some scary stuff in it, but like nothing really of, of the stuff of nightmares for me. The scariest one I think was the eighth episode called The Murmuring. 
which was more of a traditional ghost story. And anytime there's, you know, ghost stuff, that can be pretty scary and that imagery can be haunting. So that one had me creeped out. It was set in this old, big old house in a rural, remote location. So yeah, that one was good. But um, my favorite episode was the seventh one. It's called The Viewing. And you heard the voice in that clip of Peter Weller who's saying, you're harshing my mellow, man. And, um, oh my gosh, I, I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that episode. It's directed by a guy named Panos Cosmatos, who is apparently the director of this wacky looking movie that came out called Mandy a few years back starring Nicolas Cage. And I've always wanted to see that movie because I hear it's nuts. And this episode is nuts as well. He gathers these four people of completely different walks of life to have to his place for a private viewing of something. And turns out he is super, super rich and he lives in this gigantic property and they go hang out in this weird room and sit around this circular couch in the middle of the floor. And uh, I don't really want to spoil anything else because it's just, it's wild. It's unbelievable actually. And then once, once it reaches the, the insane part of the episode, the aforementioned insanity, I, that's it. Kind of lost me a little bit, but I enjoyed the rest of it so much that uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend this again. If you're looking for something like really creepy or really scary, Cabinet of Curiosities might not be for you. But if you want some really unique and fascinating stories, uh, definitely check this out. Now, Jeff, I know that you started to watch this. How far did you get? Yep. Oh, I just watched the first two, so we'd have something to talk about last week. Uh, <laughs> and I I did enjoy them, but, uh, you know, just too much grody, gross, gory, goreness I just can't handle. So I, I sort of tapped out after those two. It's um, I love Guillermo del Toro, and I, I know he didn't direct these, but he, you know, curated the season or whatever and produced it. But even with his movies, he makes like these, like a movie like The Shape of Water, one best picture. And it's, you know, it's about what it is or whatever. It's not a horror movie or anything like that, but he does put like two super gross things in it for just no reason at all. Like a door slams on somebody's hands and he just like lingers on this guy's poor fingers laying on the floor after they come clean off his hand. He's just like, why are you doing that, man? You had a great movie going here and now I can't rewatch it because it's too gross. (laughs) And I remember Pan's Labyrinth as well caught you off guard with some of the, some of the imagery and that is total nightmare fuel. There's a guy that uh, his face gets cut and he sews it back together and they show it. And I I've still uh, I don't like thinking about that. I had nightmares about that for quite a while. Okay. Sorry to bring that up again. Hopefully it doesn't re-trigger you. Uh, so Cabinet of Curiosities now available in its entirety on Netflix. Unless you're listening to this on Thursday. We record this on Thursday. But if you're listening to this on the radio on the weekend, then you'll be able to watch the whole thing. So, yeah. Uh, now there you go. let's move on to what you watched. Yeah, well, House of the Dragon, as it turns out, was not the only show that had its finale this week. So did a much smaller, quieter series over on Disney Plus called The Patient. I know I'm not normal. No, no, no! But I don't feel crazy. Thinking, thinking, thinking. I really think if we can just talk, this will be okay. Okay. Okay-ish. Okay. I have a compulsion to kill people. 
The patient stars Steve Carell and Donald Gleason as a psychiatrist and his patient, respectively. The hook, though, is the patient's a serial killer and the psychiatrist is chained up in his basement. In the first episode, right at the beginning, Gleason kidnaps Carell, leg chains him downstairs, and forces him to give him therapy in an effort to stop all the serial killing. It's a wild concept. I've never come across another movie or show that did anything similar, so that was a point in the show's favor, as was the runtime. It's 10 episodes, and they're each about half an hour long, uh, and even though, you know, it's definitely not a comedy, usually the 30-minute runtime signals that you're about to see something funny, but when you're a high-concept show with really nothing more than the gimmick going on, there's no need to drag it out, and even still, they probably could have lost a couple of episodes to keep the momentum going. If this were eight episodes or seven, it would have been perfect. Uh, another point in favor of the patient was that it came to us from the two guys that brought us the show, The Americans, which was one of my favorite shows of recent years. And if you saw the finale to that show, you wouldn't be surprised to know that the finale of The Patient was also excellent. It was a bit of a longer episode, but still just around 40 minutes. It's hard to tell with Disney Plus because most of their stuff has about six minutes of credits at the end as they do uh, all the credits for the voiceover artists in all the other languages and that just adds a few minutes of the runtime. so the the thing where you're used to looking at that timeline and seeing how much time you got left with i find with disney plus shows it's it's hard to judge how much time is really left because the minute the end credits could be just almost endless but uh yeah no spoilers but they did stick the landing in the ending of the show and like the americans they found ways to make some of the non-surprising elements very surprising it was also very touching and poetic it's just good television. The two performances from Carell and Gleason were obviously the high points of the show because most of it is them just sitting there talking to each other. Carell is very believable as a mild-mannered psychiatrist, although I will say in the first episode, I sometimes kept thinking of him as Michael Scott in that situation, but that quickly evaporated. And I was reminded once again that even though he is obviously one of the most gifted comic actors of the last 15 years, he's also no slouch in the drama department. Donald Gleason is very believable as a serial killer. I'm not sure that's even a compliment, but it's true. He's got a unique look about him and he's got the acting chops. It felt pretty real. He's not some cartoonish madman, which is a direction a lot of other actors and writers probably would have gone in. And at no point was I reminded of, uh, General Hux, his Star Wars character, I think the only other role I've seen him in. While the lion's share of these episodes are those two guys talking, the show does smartly find ways to incorporate some other scenes so we wouldn't get, you know, bored of just watching these two guys in a basement. There are flashbacks for Carell as he thinks about his family issues, hoping he can escape and resolve some of them. There are scenes of Gleason out in the world as he's tempted to kill again. And most impressively, the show features Carell's inner monologue by depicting he himself in therapy with a colleague played by David Allen Greer. Again, two hilarious men sharing the screen talking about things that aren't funny at all. Good stuff all around. An original premise, well executed, and again, a terrific finale. All episodes now available, and I highly recommend The Patient on Disney Plus. Four couch cushions out of five. And just uh, on the... How do you pronounce his first name? Donal? Donal. Donal? Yes. It's one of those... Uh, very, very, very Irish names. Donald Gleason. Um, you may have seen him before. Have you ever seen the movie Ex Machina? No, I have not. I've heard good things about it. I've never got around to seeing it. Yeah, it's really cool. He's a super versatile actor. He's one of those guys that uh, he's kind of a, chame a chameleon because he can mask it himself, but as well as his voice so well. Uh, he was so Ex Machina. I'm trying to think. Of he was in The Revenant. 
He was uh, Captain Andrew Henry. I don't expect you to remember the character's name, but if you were to watch it again, you might uh, recognize him in that. Weren't most of those guys uh, fully bearded and dirty, though? Like, how yeah. would you even recognize? Even uh, even uh, Leo was hard to recognize in that one. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those things where it was like where I saw him in something else afterward. I thought, oh, okay, yeah. I remember him in The Revenant. And, um, well, I don't think you've watched, you haven't watched uh, Black Mirror, have you? The TV no, show? No, sir. Okay. Yeah, he was in that. He played a really neat character in that. And he was also in the movie Dread. Um, and uh, it took me years to put that one together because he looks completely different. He's got long hair and, and like glassy eyes. And yeah, it doesn't he looks more like Marilyn Manson in that movie than he does like we're used to seeing him. So yeah, he's a great actor. Uh, and I, thanks for the reminder on this. I was, I was meaning to check this out eventually. But as always, you know, the list keeps growing and things get just pushed off of it because I forget. And Oh, yeah. Etc. Etc. In a moment, we have we got to experience something that is available right now to watch on your television through one of the streaming services, but we got to see it live. Details in a moment. You're listening to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. We've talked about this before, but this week we saw it in a different kind of a way. We are going to tell you how you can watch it on your TV in just a few minutes. We're talking about the smash hit musical Come From Away. East tip of North America on an island called Newfoundland, there's an airport. It used to be one of the biggest airports in the world. And next to it is a town called Gander. There's a two-person police department. An elementary school. An SPCA. A local TV station. And a hockey rink. It's a small place on a giant rock in the ocean. Everybody knows everybody else. And everybody in this room has a story about how they started that day. Welcome to the rock if you come from away. You probably understand about half of what we say. They say no man's an island, but an island makes a man. Especially when one comes from one like Newfoundland. Welcome to the Rock! So it tells the story of something rather special that happened in a little place in Newfoundland, created by Irene Sankoff and David Hine, born in North York, Ontario, and Regina, respectively. When you first hear about Come From Away, you might think, really? A musical about 9-11? But that's not quite the case. Now, you might remember Tom Brokaw did a piece for NBC back in February of 2010 during the Winter Olympics where he explained Canada to the U.S., and he referenced a rather important moment in history. In our darkest hours, Canada has been with us. On September 11th, as the United States shut down its airspace, Canada instituted Operation Yellow Ribbon landing 239 U.S.-bound flights with 33,000 passengers at 17 different Canadian airports. And then, amid the uncertainty that followed, entire communities housed and fed those thousands of passengers for days afterward. So Come From Away focuses on the true story of 38 planes that had to land in Gander, Newfoundland. Those planes were carrying 7,000 people. The population of Gander was 9,000, so the, the size of their town almost doubled instantly. It's a remarkable story that shows how even in the face of true horror and tragedy, we are capable of stepping up to help out in ways we never thought possible. And this music makes you just feel that. And Newsweek, I think, summed it up nicely, saying this show takes you to a place you never want to leave. Last year on September 10th, Apple TV Plus released a movie version where they recorded a performance of the show on Broadway, kind of like the, the Hamilton production that's available on Disney Plus. 
So I signed up for Apple TV Plus just for this, although I later ended up watching Ted Lasso, and thank God I did because I loved that so much. It was my favorite show of the year last year. And watching it on TV turned out to be a much better experience than I expected, but it's still not quite the same thing as seeing it live. Well, turns out there's a North American tour happening right now, and currently it's where we are in Winnipeg. Jeff saw it one night. I saw it the other. I loved it again. But Jeff, what did you think? Yeah, I had never seen it before, and I actually went. I, I knew I learned it was coming, and uh, it's like, well, Brett was been just raving about this when he saw it, so well, I better go see it. So my girlfriend and I went to check it out this week, and we both just loved it as well. The whole audience loved it. Uh, there was an instant sort of uh, standing ovation at the end that was uh, quite prolonged, as it turned out. It was a long-standing O, and it was uh, much deserved by the cast. It was an amazing performance. Like you said, uh, the, you wouldn't think that there'd be an entertaining show about 9-11, and, you know, there's obviously some horribly sad things that happen in this play, but it's also very funny, and I was incredibly impressed at the, the job that the show does, walking that fine line, and when something, there is a sad moment, it doesn't linger on it, too long that you won't be able to be brought back up again. And so it's kind of a roller coaster like that, but it, it just it, it just it just works. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the pace of the show. It, it's incredibly fast paced. It's about an hour and 45 minutes long, maybe something like that. There's no intermission. And there's I think 12 actors that play probably three dozen parts altogether. Each actor plays a few parts and they're just constantly moving in and out and there's just constant motion on the stage as it goes so you're just you're sucked right in and before you know it it's over like there it just doesn't give you time to breathe which is good because then like i said when things do get sad you don't get time to like sit there and actually get depressed about it because it just keeps you locked in and brings you right back so i i, I loved it i thought it was an amazing thing um my only little nitpick is uh i've complained on this show many times about how i don't like uh watching people with boston accents and movies set in boston and uh, so going in i was like oh am i gonna be irritated by the newfoundland accent but <laughs> as it turned out after about uh a few minutes it, I, you know i just got used to it and it was fine so it, that didn't bother me at all and uh i actually you know i could understand everything they were saying i was impressed with uh me being able to pick it up but the again the actors did such a great job they were in Saskatoon before coming to Winnipeg. I don't know how much of Canada they visited so far. There are only three Canadian stops left. Ottawa in December and January. Montreal in January. Victoria in May. The rest of the tour is crisscrossing the United States. So maybe that's no good for you in terms of being able to see it live. But if you do ever get the chance to see this live, do it. But in the meantime, watch it on Apple TV+. And Crave has an excellent documentary called You Are Here, A Come From Away Story. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.